It is good to be with you. And uh, it's one of my great joys is to be able to visit our member churches, to get acquainted with the leaders and with the saints. And so I'm very delighted to be with you here today in Rankin, Georgia at Ephesus Church. I want you to turn with me this morning, if you would, in your copy of the Scriptures to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 37 through 42. Luke chapter 9, and I'm also going to be reading from Mark chapter 9, the same account that we find in Luke. I want to read both because we will be, I'll be referring to Mark's account as well as Luke's account, and I A lot of what I'm referring to is a mark, but there's just some things in Luke that I want to talk about too, about the healing uh, of the um, of the young man who was uh, was uh, demon possessed. He was an epileptic, we would probably say today, although his condition was far beyond that. And the Lord Jesus, in His power, did heal him. So let's read, first of all, in Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 37. Now it happened on the next day, when they had come together from the mountain, that a great multitude met him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth. And it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall uh, I bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down. And convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. Now turn back, please, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, and starting at verse 14. Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, starting at verse 14. We have the same account, and Mark gives us a little more detail than what Luke does in his account. Verse 14 of Mark 9. And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with him. And Jesus is coming to his disciples just after being on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. Immediately, when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, 
If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he came into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. So the reading of God's holy word. You notice that in Mark's account, we are told that the father said to Jesus that this was his only child. We have four children, 13 grandchildren. Perhaps some of you have an only child. As I'm looking over this congregation, it looks like most of you have more than one child. That's good. What a blessing. But this was this man's only child. And here his, this father was faced with what was an impossible situation. I'm sure he tried every conceivable means to bring comfort and healing and restoration to his son, his only child. Was there any hope for this child? Have you ever faced a situation that looks impossible? When there seems to be no way to solve the problems that you're facing? I pastored Sycamore Baptist Church in East Moline, Illinois for 33 years. I nor the church were reformed when I started pastoring in 1975 at that church. And as we went through our reformation, we faced what looked like an impossible situation. For a period of time, I saw people leaving the church. I saw a congregation of 120 dwindle down to 40. And I shall never forget, we had three sections like you do. We had pews rather than chairs, somewhat smaller auditorium. And thankfully, when we dwindled down to 40 on Sunday night, they all sat in the center section. So I didn't have to look that way or this way. And I was preaching through Joshua about the great victories which the Lord gives. (laughs) And I remember thinking, this is really interesting. Preaching through Joshua about the great victories, walking around the walls of Jericho. And here we are. We don't know whether we're going to survive. Whether we'll be here in another year. Money was so tight that we couldn't even turn the heat up. We had a Christian school during the school day. Children met in the basement and we had a cement floor. And we asked them to bring rugs to put their feet on to keep their feet from getting so cold when they were in the basement. Salaries weren't always paid on time during those years. And we did wonder whether or not we'd survive. But you know something? The Lord preserved us. And when I left the church 33 years later in 2008, 
It was about back at the same attendance it was when I came. That doesn't sound too good, but to me it was a wonderful thing. It, was a strong, it is a strong church today that loves the Lord and is proclaiming the gospel and united. Thank the Lord for his goodness. It was impossible to us as we viewed it, but God heard our prayers. And he took the impossible and turned it into great, great blessing. Now, some of you may be facing frightening situations in your own life. Perhaps, um, as this father with this child, you may be facing family issues. Maybe you have a wayward child that you're praying for. Maybe there are other situations in your life that look impossible. Well, this message is for you. Some of you are having happy times. I mean, there's no problems at the present. Those times always scared me because I knew what was coming in this near, near, near future. But if that's the case, that you are facing a, 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 one of these calm, peaceful, prosperous times in your life, this message is also for you because my Bible says and your Bible says it is through much tribulation that we enter into the kingdom. So if you're not facing tribulation and trouble now, you will. I guarantee it, you will. I don't guarantee it, God does. I'm always confident when God guarantees it, I know it's going to happen. So the message is for you as well. Well, here's my theme this morning. Jesus' powerful victory over the impossible. And I want to address two questions. And the first question is this, what is it that makes something look impossible? And then the second question that I want to address is, what is the solution to overcoming the impossible? And I have two answers to each of the two questions. That's to help us remember these things. I hope it'll help us to remember. So the first question is, what is it that makes something look impossible? That is, from the text, what can we glean? What is it that makes something look impossible? Well, as I said, two answers. Well, the first, the first answer is, something looks impossible when it is humanly impossible to solve. And that's illustrated by this incurable boy who was demon-possessed here in our text. He was controlled by a spirit, by a very wicked, perverse, and evil spirit. Verses back in, in Luke now, I'm mainly in Luke now, verses 39 and 40. The father said, uh, or he, when he saw Jesus coming, he says, Teacher, I implore you, look at my son, because a spirit seizes him. This father recognized that what was happening to his son was from an evil spirit, and the spirit seized him, grabbed a hold of him. He knew that the boy could do nothing about it. He knew that he could do nothing about it. This boy was under the domination of a wicked, evil spirit. I cannot think of anything that would be more troubling than that. More troubling than that. Notice how wicked this spirit was. He seized the boy. And then we read in verse 39 that the boy suddenly cries out. And by implication, we infer that what is happening, that the spirit is crying out through the boy's vocal cords. It convulses him and convulses him and so shakes his body that the boy is so overcome with pain that the boy begins to foam at the mouth. I will confess, I've never seen a human being foaming at the mouth. Maybe some of you have. 
That's how wicked this spirit was. And then it says it departs from him. It's as though the spirit tortures him. And when he's tortured him so much that the boy is foaming at the mouth, overcome with pain, then it leaves him. And notice what happens when the spirit leaves him. Our text says it departs of him with great difficulty, bruising him, literally one who crushes him or breaks him. It's an interesting word that Luke uses here. Luke, the physician, uses here to describe this. It's hard to determine exact meaning, not of the word, but of its use in this passage. We have to ask ourselves, and literally it means crushing. Crushing. Not just a slight blow to the arm that would leave a bruise, but crushing the whole boy. In some way, this spirit so tortured this boy that his whole body, as it were, was crushed. There could not be a more vivid description of the awful predicament of this young boy. And Mark adds one more thing, which is equally troubling. It says the boy was mute. Now, here it says he cries out. So he could make some kind of a sound, which the spirit probably made, but the boy was mute. That means he could not articulate in words what was troubling him. Have you ever thought what it would be like to be mute? I have. My wife's mother had a stroke, and it left her so she could not speak. I remember the first night when we learned that, I, I laid in bed up there in Addison, New York, and I thought, what would it be like never to be able to utter another word? And I confess, I was overcome with some horror. I thought, oh, <laughs> communication, no communication. Well, that's the way this boy was. That's the way he was. Now, this is a desperate case. Humanly impossible to solve. I, um, I suppose today that the only way it would be solved would be very strong drugs to sedate the young man. When I preached this back in uh, Sycamore Baptist in East Moline, a young lady who worked for the sheriff's department came to me and uh, she said, Pastor, says, um, we had a man that, <clears throat> that uh, we brought in. He was arrested. I don't know what it was. It wasn't a major thing. He said, and it took four strong officers to try to hold him down and they couldn't quite do it and only when they could get strong drugs into him to sedate him, were they able to control him? I get the impression that that's the way this young boy was. Here's the point. The condition of this boy was beyond human help. That's what makes something look impossible. When there's no plan, nothing that can be done humanly to deliver us from our present situation. But there's a second answer to this question. What is it that makes something look impossible? 
Well, it is when there is a lack of faith and a good deal of sinful unbelief. Look at verses 40 and 41 of our text. The Father said to Jesus, He says, I came to your disciples, I implored them, I begged them to cast them out. He said, but they couldn't do it. And Jesus makes this astonishing, stunning rebuke. And notice his rebuke is not just to the Father. He says, O faithless and perverse generation. He looks at them all. He, can, he includes the Father. He includes the disciples. He includes the scribes. He includes the multitudes. And he says, you're a faithless generation. In other words, he's saying, the problem isn't just you, the Father, to the Father, but you, grow, you have grown up in a culture and you live in a culture that is without faith. You do not believe. This is one of the most stinging rebukes that Jesus ever gave in his earthly ministry. Now, he pointed out the scribes and the Pharisees. We read about it in Matthew 23. He says, woe unto you, scribes, woe unto you, Pharisees. And he really reamed them out. But as far as a stinging rebuke that incorporates everybody, I don't think we find anything like this in the ministry of Jesus in, the, in, in any other part of the gospel. You're a faithless, unbelieving generation. So he lays the blame at the whole culture, the whole mindset, the way that everybody thought in that day. There in the land of Israel. You're a faithless generation. Let's talk about these people who are unbelief and take them one, one, one group at a time. Think of the multitude. We read in verse 37 that it happened on the next day when they came down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. And we know that this great multitude was also observing what was going on. Jesus is saying to them, and in Mark 9.14, we, we find that this crowd was surrounding Jesus and listening to the scribes and the Pharisees' dispute with the disciples. They were watching, observing, but they didn't really believe that anything could happen. How do we know they didn't believe? Well, one of the points of my message, one of the main points of my message later on is going to be the need to pray. We know they didn't believe because they weren't praying. What does a believing man do when he faces an impossible situation? Well, he doesn't do what this multitude did. They were just looking on. The scribes, well, they were cynical, of course, but they weren't believing. We know that. They were arguing with the disciples, but they weren't helping in any way. They were probably gloating. See, you guys can't do it. You think you've got such a great teacher? You think Jesus is so great? If he were so great, why, does he, why aren't you able to deliver this young boy from the demon? And then the disciples, they were trying, but they didn't have any success in their efforts of trying to deliver this young boy. They completely and utterly failed in their efforts to do that. And the father, the father was a desperate man. He had some faith, very, very little, as he himself confesses. He said, and this is back in Mark where we read this, in Mark he said, if, if you are able to do something, please do it. But he used the word if. 
Can you imagine saying to the God incarnate, Jesus Christ, if you can do something? Sure you can, because you probably do that lots of times. <laughs> if you can do something. If God can do something, God manifests in the flesh. But you see, that's why Jesus said you're a faithless generation. We need to explore the nature of this unbelief because we, we need to explore it because we need to understand how unbelief creeps into our hearts and into our lives. Um, I want to use the analogy of clothing. And let me tell you why I want to use the analogy of clothing. I really want to talk about fig leaves. I want to talk about the fig leaves that dress up our unbelief and try to hide it. You all know what happened in the garden after Adam and Eve sinned, how that they knew they were naked and so they made fig leaves to cover themselves. I read a Puritan once who said, every morning when you get up and you start dressing, you ought to remember why, you're, why, why you are dressing. You're dressing because you're a shameful sinner. And if you weren't such a shameful sinner, you wouldn't need clothes. And I'm, all, I'm very glad you all have clothes on this morning. And you're glad I'm having clothes on. Why do we need these clothes? Why well, we need these fancy clothes to cover our shame and our sin. And of course, it's a great, it's a great aid for people to make money too and selling them, isn't it? But that's why we need clothes. Well, you see, we can clothe ourselves in such a way as to reason away our unbelief. There are fig leaves that will cover the real issue of unbelief. And let's talk about some of these fig leaves. First of all, there is, there is the fig leaf, or the fig leaves, I should say, of theological argument. Back in Mark chapter 9 and verse 14, you may recall that it says that uh, the scribes were disputing with them. They had all kinds of reasons why it is they would not believe. The scribes reasoned. I, I can just imagine their reasoning. They said to the disciples, oh, of course this boy can't be healed. This boy can't be healed because either he sinned terribly, probably his father sinned. And because his father sins so horribly, it wouldn't even be the will of God to deliver him from this ailment. His father deserves this kind of judgment. The fig leaves of false theology we sometimes use to cover our unbelief as to how, so that we say it's, it's impossible. It's humanly impossible, and it's God's will that we remain miserable, foaming at the mouth, or whatever the case may be. Then let's think about some other theological or some other arguments. There's the fig leaves of curiosity. We see that here in, in Luke, verse 37, where it says, The next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great multitude met him. The multitude was curious. They wanted to see what was going on. The multitude was there, but you see, they weren't praying or believing. The lack of prayer is one of the most visible indications of unbelief. How many people are there both inside and outside the church that just simply watch? I hope you're not one of them. There are some people who say, hmm, you know, I wonder what's going to happen with this church. I'm just going to be very curious to see what happens. 
I'm, I know that there were people like that both inside and outside the church I pastored during our difficult years. But that's the fig leaf of curiosity. It's simply an attempt to cover wicked, sinful, unbelief. That's all it is. That's all it is. It satisfies everybody except God, who came and tore the fig leaves off Adam and even gave them a real covering after blood was spilt. Then there's the fig leaves of despair. And this is illustrated by the Father. The Father said, if you can do something, please do it. If you can do something. But he didn't have much hope, nor did he have much faith. I want you to think how different this father was from the centurion who had the servant who was almost dead. He came to Jesus and he said, you don't even need to come to my house. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. I'm a man under authority, and I say to this soldier, go, and he goes. I say to that one, come, and he comes. If you just say the word, I know that my servant can be healed. Now, that's faith. His servant was almost dead, almost dead, on his deathbed, weaker and weaker, breathing his last. And he says, if you simply say the word, Jesus said the word, and in faith, the man went back home, and the servants met him and said, the boy is better. This father said, having the fig leaves of despair. He says, if you can do something. Have you ever been there? Go to God and say, Lord, if you can do something. Not sure you can, but maybe, just maybe. Those are fig leaves to cover our unbelief. And we've got to get rid of all those fig leaves. As it were, we need to be naked before our God and simply trust Him. Well, we've been asking the question, what is it that makes something look impossible? Well, we've answered in two ways. The first answer was, it's when something is humanly impossible to solve. And the second answer was, unbelief. It is unbelief, a lack of faith, that makes something look impossible. But now we must move on to a brighter part of this message because our second question is this. What is the solution to overcoming the impossible? And our text gives us important lessons on what it is that will help us to overcome the impossible. And I have, again, two answers. And really it's only one answer, but I've divided it in two because I want to keep this sermon balanced, right? So let's look at the first answer. What is it that will make, what is the solution to overcoming the impossible? First of all, it is to believe. And there are some of you sitting out there who say, that's too simple. I think the five-year-olds in Sunday school could have answered that. Ah, I think they probably could. And if they answered that right, that way they would be right. It's one thing knowing, it's another thing believing. We may know that the answer to overcoming the impossible is to believe, but we have to believe. We have to really trust. This is what Jesus is saying in verse 41. 
when he calls them faithless. He says, no longer be faithless, but really believe. No longer be perverse, but really believe in this stinging rebuke. And the word perverse means crooked. No longer be misled. How is it that faith then expresses itself? It's one thing to just simply say we are to believe, but we need to know how it is and what is the evidence of believing. What does a trusting person do when he trusts? Well, he trusts. And how is trust indicated? Well, it is manifested through prayer. And that's what we see back in Mark chapter 9, because the disciples asked Jesus, they said, why couldn't we cast this demon out? And Jesus said, well, um, he says, this kind can come out, cannot come out except by prayer and fasting. Now, not all of our modern translations include the word fasting. There's a manuscript different, difference there. And I'll not worry you with long arguments on one side or the other except to say that I think there's valid evidence in the manuscripts for including fasting. But even if you don't include fasting, we have plenty of evidence in the rest of Scripture that many times fasting, when we face special difficulties, is included. We see the examples of it many places. Actually, fasting in Mark chapter 9, verse 29 is uh, there are only four manuscripts that leave it out. There's a couple of um, uh, fourth century manuscripts and a 15th and a 14th manuscript that leave it out. But there's a, there is a papyri from the third century that includes it. And of course, the vast majority include it. But as I said, even if it's not there, we need to understand that fasting is to be a part of the New Testament church. And here was a very special situation. Even if fasting was incorporated by a scribe in copying later, he did it with the understanding that when Jesus said this is by prayer, understanding the impossibility of this situation, that it will be appropriate to fast when we reach this kind of level of difficulty. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, And when you fast, do not be as the scribes and the Pharisees. Don't put on a sad countenance. Notice what he said. He did not say, if you decide to fast. He says, when you fast. He says, you as my disciples, you will fast while you pray. And another time, Jesus was asked why it is his disciples didn't fast and John's did. And he says, well, the bridegroom is with them right now, and, and you don't fast when the bridegroom is there? He says, but the, when I am taken away, when the bridegroom goes away, then, he says, they will fast. So how is it, what is the solution to the impossible? It is to pray. It is to pray earnestly. I suggest to you, it is to pray with fasting. You remember in the early church when elders were laid up, were, were raised up, or actually the first missionaries, Paul and, uh, Paul and, um, and Barnabas, who were sent out from the church in Antioch, that we read that the prophets and the elders there were doing what? 
They were praying and fasting, and the Spirit said to them, Set aside Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so they were sent out. It is then earnest prayer with fasting that shows the, the evidence and manifests the truth that one is depending and trusting and really believing the true and the living God. Think with me, if you would, of some of the examples of prayer for the advancement of the kingdom and for, the, for, 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 for doing things, for God accomplishing things that are humanly impossible to do. I think of, of Isaac when his, with his barren wife, Rebecca. And he pled with God. And God gave her not just one child, but two twins in her womb. Or think with me of Elijah after he'd had that great victory on Mount Carmel. And when the Baal prophets had been put to death. And then he went some distance away and he bowed down to the ground seven times. And each time after he prayed, he asked his servant to go look. Do you see anything? He said, no. Do you see anything? No. And finally the seventh time the servant said, I see a cloud the size of a man's hand. Elijah says, tell Ahab to get in his chariot and go because it's going to rain. And it did rain. He prayed. And we're told that we're to follow the example of Elijah in the book of, a book of uh, James. He, was a, he prayed fervently that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain. He prayed fervently that it would rain, and it did rain. These things are humanly impossible. You can't produce rain humanly. Or stop rain? Think of Daniel. He read in the Bible that there would be 70 years of captivity, and he prayed. He knew that there were three captivities. Activities, 606 or 605, 597, 586, came down to 536, which was 50 years from the third captivity, and he prayed, Oh Lord God, let it be from the, let you please number from the first one. And God heard that prayer. And in 536, the decree went out from Cyrus for them to go back. Then think of Nehemiah. When he heard that the walls were broken down, he wept, he fasted, he prayed. And he mourned for many days. And when we come to the New Testament, we just look at the life of Jesus and look at his prayer life. He was praying early in the morning and his disciples found him. And when they found him, they said, Oh, everybody's looking for you. He says, We must go preach the gospel to the next towns. After praying all night, he says, I know that I can't stay here. I've got to go someplace else and preach the gospel. He spent a whole night in prayer before he chose the twelve. When he came to Lazarus' tomb, he prayed. He prayed. And then after Jesus' ascension, the 120 gathered in that upper room. And what did they do? Well, you all know what they did. They prayed. They sought the God of heaven. And the Spirit of God descended upon them with power. And they spoke the word of God in all these various languages. And then they were threatened again in Acts chapter 4. And they prayed. And again, the Spirit filled them and the place was 
was shaken and they spoke the word of God with boldness, we read. When Paul went out and preached the gospel in Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14, we read that he went back to these cities and he prayed with fasting and they selected elders. Then he came back and reported to the church. By the way, you realize what we did in Sunday school this morning was biblical. There's to be reports given to the church about the progress of the gospel of missionaries. That's what Saul did. And churches need to make sure that they keep up to date on the progress of the gospel. That's what Paul did when he went back to those churches. We read in Acts chapter 12 that after Peter was put in prison, after James had been already martyred, the church was praying all night long. And Peter was released. Peter was released. Prayer is what characterized the early church. Remember at the very beginning of the New Testament church in Acts chapter 2, when the 3,000 believed, we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Continued steadfastly in prayers. And I'm submitting to you that this passage of Scripture that we're looking at with an impossible situation, humanly speaking, which made it even more impossible because of unbelief that the main lesson that Jesus is teaching, because this is what he says in Acts 9, verse 29, or, or Mark 9, 29. He says, this kind comes only out with prayer and fasting. He's saying to his disciples, you were disputing with the scribes. Quit disputing, go aside, kneel down and start praying, and then you could have had the power from God to deliver this young man. But they didn't pray because they didn't believe. And if we really believe, we will really pray. That is what we must do. The church is most powerful when she is on her knees pleading with God. Satan has been defeated. On the cross, his head was crushed. We're just waiting for the final sentencing. He's already done. Christ has won the victory. And we can go to our king in prayer. And he's told us if we, that if we ask anything according to his will in his name, that he will hear us and grant us what we desire. Now, I need to make some applications. First of all, I want to make sure that we apply this correctly. It doesn't mean that every problem that we pray about will be solved the way that we hope it will be, prayed, be solved. The first time that we had a day of prayer fasting at the church that I pastored, um, we pled with God that he would come and help us. We didn't know what we were praying for. We just knew we needed his help. And he helped us. A whole bunch of people left the church. <laughs> that isn't exactly what I had in mind. But now, all these 30-plus years later, 
I, can, I, I know that that's exactly what we needed at that time. It was what we needed. So God doesn't always answer the prayers exactly the way that uh, we think they should be answered. But He does answer prayer. He does answer prayer. I preached this message once in a church in, in another state up north. And after I preached the message, a lady came to me and, and, and said, you know, I just started coming to this church just a couple of years ago and my son was an epileptic. And I'd never been at a church where they prayed like this before. So I asked them to pray for my son. And she says, he doesn't have epilepsy anymore. I said, praise the Lord. I rode home that evening with a young man whom I knew. But I had forgotten that he was an epileptic. And he said, uh, is it every time that we pray for someone who has uh, who have epilepsy, will they, will they always be healed? He says, you know, I'm, I'm an epileptic. I said, yes, I know. I said, no, it doesn't mean that, does it? Because the Apostle Paul prayed three times that his thorn in the flesh should be removed. And the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And that's what this young man has found. His God's grace is sufficient for him. So the Lord answers prayers in different ways. We leave that to his sovereign will. The point is that we pray and that we accept the answer he gives to us. Um, so that caution, because I'm always afraid that someone will go forth and say, you know, I have this problem, and I'm going to pray, and I, I know the way it should be solved. No, we don't know the way it should be solved. All we know is that there is a God in heaven who hears our prayers and answers our prayers in accordance with His perfect, sovereign, holy will. And He's a loving and kind Father who will not give us a stone if we ask for fish. He won't do that. He won't do it. So that's the first application of a bring. Let's make sure that we trust Him and are willing to accept whatever His answer is. There's a second application that I would bring, and that is <clears throat> when we face an overwhelming need, we need to pray. We need to seek God. We simply need to seek God. David Brainerd was a great evangelist to the American Indians, but he was a very melancholy fellow. He died when he was only 29 years of age. He hardly had any light I mean by light, any outwardly. If, if, you re, if you've read his memoirs, um, it's very distressing, actually. He was a godly man, however. Um, he studied at Yale. He became a Christian when he was 21, and the, and, the, and the light of the gospel flooded his soul. But he was somewhat unwise in, at that tender age of 21. And... Uh, he made a comment one time regarding a professor who was teaching him. He says, that professor has no more grace in him, he says, in that chair. Well, word got out, and they kicked him out of Yale because he said that. And as a result, he could not be ordained to the gospel ministry in his denomination. But others recognized that he was a very gifted man, and so they sent him to the Indians. 
and he preached the gospel to them. He lived by himself, very lonely life. One of his biographers said that there seemed to be a direct correlation between the times when he would spend long times in prayer and the fruit to his ministry. And at one point, at a place called Cross Wingsung, there were 120 Native Americans converted. And they gave up their wandering, nomadic ways and said, we've got to settle in one place just so we can be someplace where we can hear the gospel, Lord's Day in and Lord's Day out. Prayer. When do we need to pray like this? We need to pray like this when we have children that are drifting away. I remember hearing the story about a man who said, praise God, he says, my last child was converted. They said, how did that happen? He says, in the regular way. He says, I spent all night praying and wrestling with God, and God heard my prayers. When we face any situation that seems overwhelming, it seems that there is no answer. When a church faces severe difficulties, the church needs to pray and to seek the God of heaven in faith. And just one last application. Some of you here this morning have never truly prayed because you don't yet know Jesus Christ as your own Lord and Savior. I want to talk to you. I don't know who you are, but I want to talk to you, whoever you are. You know who you are. You know what you need to do? You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. You say, how do I believe? You pray. You come to the Lord Jesus and you say, save me. This is what the Bible says. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How do you call on his name? Well, how do you call your friends? You pick up your cell phone and you dial the number and you call them, you talk to them. And so it is to be saved. You need to call on the name of the Lord. You don't need your cell phone. All you need to do is say in your heart and in your mind and with your voice, Lord Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. I need to be forgiven. I need to be saved. And he'll hear your prayer. And he'll save your soul. And you'll, he'll make you one of his own dear children. Believe on him. Call on him. And I say to all of you, all of you who are professing Christians, when you face the impossible, it's time to believe. And it's time to pray. Seek his face for the glory of his name. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel which saves sinners. We thank you for the promise of prayer that our prayers will be answered. And we ask them in Jesus' name. Forgive us of our sin of unbelief. We so often and far too many times are not believing. Help us, we pray by your grace, to be a people of faith and to express that faith by seeking your face in prayer. We ask this in the name of our Savior, who is at your right hand. And Lord Jesus, 
Please take our prayers and translate them so that your Father understands what we're saying. And blessed Holy Spirit, help us too in our prayers. We ask that you be pleased to grant us that simple faith and trust expressed in prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.